This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And we have a special edition of the show today that I'm personally really excited about. I think Joe's a little bit excited about it. No, I'm very excited about it. I mean, to put it in framework, Jason and I just finished a really nice in-depth interview with uh, former congressman, former House Minority Leader, Richard Gephardt. He had a lot of things to say that I don't think we can just squeeze into a short post. And we thought it would be really enlightening to people that have known the congressman, either locally or nationally, to hear his thoughts on the issues of today and to get a sense of what he's going to be talking about on Friday at Washington University. We started off the show just asking what he's doing right now, because he's had a kind of a varied private sector career after he left Congress after the 2004 election cycle. Is that fair to say, Joe? Yes. But, but I think he has a lot of insight, whether one agrees or disagrees. Uh, Gebhardt, who is a major Democratic figure for elite, over 20 years, um, really had some insight into the various issues that are facing the country and the region right now. And in some cases, it's because he has key seats on various corporate boards or elsewhere that kind of he does have some behind the scenes involvement. So let's get straight to our interview where the congressman tells us what he's doing right now. Well, I'm uh, first of all, I have uh, two firms uh, and one with my son uh, in Atlanta. We do labor management work all over the country. We uh, work not only on businesses that have unions, uh, sometimes they don't, but we work to have a better partnership between workers and managers so they have greater success. And then we have a firm in D.C. that does government work uh, for various entities. And then I'm on uh, a number of for-profit and not-for-profit boards, one of them that you would probably know as Centene here in St. Louis, does work in the Medicaid program and Medicare, healthcare in general. And uh, I've in the past been on the board of U.S. Steel and Ford and uh, still on the board of Spirit Aerosystems in Wichita, makes airplane parts, fuselages for Boeing and Airbus. So I've been busy and doing a lot of interesting things and learning new things every day. I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. Now, um, this is interesting. Uh, Are you based yourself in D.C. or are you uh, in California part of the time or kind of how how do you feel this with the stuff Uh, in Atlanta and D.C.? Kind of in an airplane. Uh, (laughs) I don't spend that much time actually in D.C. Uh, I travel a lot. Uh, We have... uh, uh, 
house that we built uh, a few years ago in California, in Sonoma, and then I get out to St. Louis a lot with uh, Centene, and I have uh, the Institute for Public Service at Washington U, and that's why I'm out here uh, these days, and uh, so I do a lot of work there, and that's really been fun. Now, now, two questions that are tied to the stuff you're doing. As, as you know, you're still working with, you know, labor management and Missouri. They've just made Missouri a right-to-work state, and there's pushes in other states, and there's pushes about even a national right-to-work state. And in Missouri, they're even trying to get rid of uh, the uh, labor management, the workforce agreements, you know. Uh, right. So just just in a broad, broad sense, you know, without getting into the particulars— just in a broad sense, um, does that make your work harder or easier? Kind of, how do you assess the labor uh, climate nationally in this, without getting into any individual bill, but just in the general sense? Yeah. Well, you know, organized labor has been uh, under challenge and attack for a long time. Uh, it used to be that thirty percent of workers in private sector jobs were in labor unions. Uh, now it's like 6%. So it's really dropped down. Part of that is just the pressure that companies have put on getting rid of unions. And part of that is the right to work laws that have passed in some states. Uh, and, and also, it's just the globalization of the economy, the loss of manufacturing jobs, and the technology that's displaced workers in jobs. This was a large part of the last election, and uh, so all of this continues on. To me, unions are still a very important part of the picture, and we need unions. Uh, It's where I came from. My dad was in a union, and it's really the reason we have a middle class in the country is that unions – as my dad used to say, uh, negotiate for fair compensation for people who work hard but may not be as educated as others. And so I, I see a great need for unions. That said, unions have to offer a value proposition to workers uh, to really continue into the future. And uh, one of the projects I've been working on is trying to help unions offer uh, really high-quality health care to their members through what you would loosely call concierge uh, primary care physicians, which could really increase the quality of their health care and at the same time lower costs. So those kind of efforts are what unions have to do to really justify their value proposition and uh, get workers, even in right-to-work states, to be willing to be part of a union and pay dues. Well, you just segued into my other question, which has to do with health care. Since you're on Centene's board, you are obviously got a seat at watching what may or may not be going on in D.C. with health care, um, you know, the whole... the attempted dismantling of the Affordable Care Act, what to do about Medicare, Medicaid, just in a broad sense. I mean, what's your assessment of what's happening? And is there anything that um, Democrats or anybody can do to stop it? Or do you think it's just something that you have to deal with? 
Well, my hope is, look, uh, the ACA was not a perfect piece of legislation. I've never seen one that is perfect, but it was a big improvement in a lot of people's lives. He's got 20 million people who didn't have insurance before to have health insurance, so that's a big deal. Uh, some of the problems that, that it has can and should be corrected. And I think the Republicans are confronting now what uh, you would probably know if you worked on this kind of legislation, and that is, you know, it's it's hard to put something together. It's easy to tear it down. And, but once you have constructed it and people are enjoying it and using it, you can get in political trouble if you, you know, just knock it down uh, without putting something better in place. To do that, the Republicans really need to work with the Democrats in Congress, something that both sides have kind of stopped doing in the last five or six years. And my hope is that as they confront the complexity and difficulty of just tearing it down without putting something in place, they'll realize that working with the Democrats to get a compromise that would work for everybody is the best way to go, and I hope that's what they'll do. Let me just talk a minute about Medicaid. Um, you know, Centene does a lot in the Medicaid field. The expansion of Medicaid to people with a little bit higher income than poverty levels uh, really it caused 10 million of the 20 million people who didn't have insurance to be able to have insurance. So it's really a big factor in the whole ACA bill. So Republicans are trying to think about block granting that program entirely, not not just the expansion states, but entirely. And that has real ramifications if it isn't done carefully, because you've got to have some standards or you know regulations in it for what states can and can't do. So they're really struggling with all of this. And again. I think the best way to deal with it in a reasonable way is to include the Democrats and come in with some reasonable compromises that would improve the bill without killing it. Now, when you ran for president, uh, universal health care was like a cornerstone of your bid. This is the, the your, your second one. And you'd laid out about how to do it with businesses and, and federal subsidies to businesses and all that. My, my question is, is there anything from that proposal? Granted, it's 13 years later, but is there anything that you would you suggest that maybe that you think Congress might consider that as they're trying to fix the ACA or repeal it or whatever? I mean, is there something out of that old uh, proposal that might be of help now? Well, it actually, in many ways, was like the ACA. ACA more relied on these exchanges and less on uh, health care provided by employers. My plan was more focused in that direction. But this, this is another valid way to do it. I, I think the, the really tough problem that you run into is how do you cover sick people who cost more along with well people who cost less and charge them both a similar premium. And so it really is cost sharing between people, and that's what they're really having a struggle with figuring out. But 
there were a lot of similarities between what I talked about, you know, long ago and, and what they came up with ACA. There are no perfect answers to all these problems. Uh, I think the ACA was better than a government-run program. I think the private sector does this in the end better in a, on a competitive basis. But you've got structural problems you still have to work out. In addition to all that, the big issue beyond getting everybody covered is how in the world do you improve the provision of health care uh, on a more cost economic basis? And a couple of statistics you got to put in, in front. It, it, number one, 70% of your health status is your behavior. 20% your genes, 10% your environment. So the whole healthcare system traditionally has been focused on getting really sick people well, and that's good at it, but we don't do much to keep people well or to prevent them from getting into what we call chronic disease. And that brings me to another statistic. 20% of healthcare costs, excuse me, 80% of healthcare costs are spent by 20% of the people. They're the people with chronic diseases. So you've got to address people's behavior and try to get people to do better. And that's not smoking and diet and exercise, all the things you know that can help prevent disease. And we've just struggled with that. And that's what we really need to address. And I hope that as they rewrite the ACA, if they do, that they'll pay more attention to those kind of issues and give incentives for the system to develop a better ability to deal with keeping people well. So your political career spanned a number of decades and, and many changes in presidential leadership. Many people feel we're in unprecedented times as far as Donald Trump becoming president. Compared to the other times when you served both in local office and in, in congressional office, where does today's political climate kind of rank as far as unprecedentedness, if that is a word? Yeah. You know, one of the things I'm going to say tomorrow in my talk is that, and, and I think sometimes we don't recognize it enough, politics is a substitute for violence. It really is. And politics often and easily can get up to what I call near violence, which is, uh, you know, attacking people's character, people really getting polarized and having really hateful feelings towards people that disagree with them. So I, I'm really, I'm really a believer that, you know, we, we've accomplished democracy in this country uh, probably first before any other country. We're the best example of doing it through, you know, over 230 years. And the only way it works is if yeah, you can fight. You, you have to fight for what you believe in. You have to disagree. But you got to remember that you got to disagree without being disagreeable. You can't let your feelings, your differences on issues turn into personal hatred and really almost achieving near violence. And 
that's kind of where we've gone. We've, you know, the society is pretty polarized right now. People are hateful toward one another. They, they aren't willing to listen to the other side and understand that they have some points to make and that they have views that are worth looking at. The only way you can get things done in a legislature is if you compromise, and that means you can't get everything you want. And you got to listen to the other side and find out what they want and what they need to get something done. So that's the kind of politics I hope we can get back to. I was fortunate in my career to work with people on the other side who who were willing to work together and listen to one another and make compromises. And it's no more complicated than that. But we're having trouble with that right now. We need to get back to it. One of the things that I have noticed in this this Donald Trump world is that a lot of activists are turning their attention to members of Congress to try and stop elements of his agenda. I'm curious, as, as somebody who was not only in Congress but was also in leadership, how often did activism, whether it be organized groups or just everyday people, kind of affect your decision-making on things? Because from reading your biography, not just before this interview, but before, you did change on some policy positions over time. And I'm curious if activism kind of made you think differently about some things. Well, citizens speaking out is really the hallmark of democracy. And and you want that to happen. I mean, if, if people just are cynical and, and voiceless, uh, democracy really doesn't work. You know, one of the things I'll talk about in my talk tomorrow is that you can't have democracy without citizens. And by citizens, I mean people who vote for sure and participate, but also who speak out, demonstrate if they feel strongly about something. And and then also people, citizens who are willing to run for office and be part of the political process. You need volunteers in a democracy. So activists have always been critical to democracy. They were when I was in politics, and they are today. And my hope and belief is that uh, we have to we have to ask people to participate and be good citizens. And without citizens, we're going to not have democracy. Now, um, as a Democrat, okay, first, I mean, is there a general message that you're delivering tomorrow? I mean, you're talking about these different points. Is your aim to try to energize young people? And second, um, yeah. as, a, as a Democratic leader in, in the past, I mean, you're seeing your party like in a pretty, you know, deep hole right now. Uh, they lost a presidential election that nobody thought they were going to lose. And then, of course, things in Missouri are even worse. I'm just interested in your take on what Democrats can do, if anything, uh, to change their plight, or what what you, especially in these polarized yeah. times. Well, there's no choice but to uh, you know try to figure out uh, why you lost, and then figure out what you can do to win. It, we go through phases always, and we gotta deal with a down phase now for the Democratic Party. My sense is that we've got to find a message and a way to deliver that message that brings together minority groups and white workers 
uh, labor union members, for instance, a lot of whom voted for Donald Trump and voted for Republicans in this election, in, with an economic message of hope and opportunity, which has always been the hallmark of the Democratic Party. We kind of got away from that. <clears throat> we, uh, I think, dealt with issues like trade and education and vocational training and a pretty kind of oblique way. I mean, we didn't take into account what was happening to workers in this country of all kinds. And that was a big mistake. We've been the, we've been the party of working people and we have to get back to those issues and be convincing to people. We also have to be for political reform. And one of the big issues in the campaign was just this whole campaign finance thing and people's feeling that the whole system is corrupt, especially young people, I think, feel that. You saw that in Bernie Sanders' campaign. <clears throat> he really made an issue of that and had a large following because of it. And we've got to be credible on those issues as well. So uh, what's your general message tomorrow? I mean, are you going to be – so your message, you're speaking to what, students as well as board members and yeah. others, or what's the – Yeah, it's a, it's a mixed group. Uh, I, I'm just going to talk about kind of where we are uh, in our democracy with the polarization. I'm going to talk about uh, what people can do to counteract that and – I'm going to kind of go back to basics and explain that politics is a substitute for violence. And so you can't expect that, you know, like in Congress, 535 people can easily resolve big conflict. It's very hard, even if you work together. But that we have to keep faith with the process. We have to keep the people's faith that the process is fair. And again, with young people, you've got three obligations that are potential. One is to be a good citizen and vote and inform yourself and be part of the political process, at least to that degree. Second, if you want to do more, you should speak out. And if issues come up that you feel strongly about, even be willing to demonstrate, as people did in the civil rights movement and as people are doing now when they're upset about immigration or women's rights, but to do it, to demonstrate in a way that is respectful of others' views and, and to not obviously resort to violence, <clears throat> but also to be respectful of other people's views and to always support free speech and people's willing, ability to express their views. And finally, if they really want to, you know, be a citizen volunteer they can run for office run for the city council i talk about how i started as a precinct captain and with my wife in south st louis in uh in 1966 and uh then ran for the city council and i was a committeeman before that and then ran for congress so it, it's you just got to volunteer you got to get in the middle of it and do it are you worried at all about whether or not things are really spiraling out of control so that they can't be righted? I mean, is democracy in danger, or is this just sort of a blip and people are kind of overreacting well, talk, to some of it? Yeah, I, I talk about that. I talk about the trend toward authoritarianism, not just here, but across the world, Eastern Europe. Uh, even in Western Europe, there's a real trend toward authoritarian 
rulers or, or politicians. And I think that's a dangerous trend. I, that is not our democracy. And so we've got to guard against potential autocrats or authoritarians taking power. And we've got to strengthen all of our institutions of democracy, the courts, Congress, uh, administrative agencies. I mean, if, if America can't make democracy work, nobody can and we've got to make sure that we're making it work. Uh, for my final question, you mentioned kind of your, your, your start in St. Louis. One thing I've always wondered, what, which part of St. Louis did you represent on the Board of Aldermen before I ask my last question? Uh, it was what was then called the 14th Ward. It was around uh, Bevo Mill at the time and then Targro Park. Yeah. I lived in 4100 Fairview, and so it was that neighborhood. Yeah. That right. area that that I lived in and worked in. Yeah, I've I was been in that house a few times. Yeah, and for full disclosure, yeah. I live in St. Louis Hills, so I'm 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 a I'm oh. a 10 15 minute car ride away from there. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the reason I'm asking that is I think that you know St. Louis as a city is going through kind of a time of of transition, if I can put that euphemistically. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of positive developments with start the startup scene and some big industries moving here. But there's obviously a lot of problems with poverty, um, with with crime and, and whatnot. For for somebody who has spent basically his entire adult life trying to 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 make St. Louis and the St. Louis region better, what do you think that uh, policymakers should do to kind of move the ball forward? And just to kind of go on the topic of what you're talking about tomorrow. What should young people do at a grassroots level to make sure that uh, this city is the best that it can be? Well, there's a myriad of things that people can do to help address the problems. Uh, at the Gephardt Institute at Washington U, uh, the next day or two, we're going to be talking about initiatives that we can put out there for people to participate in. And, uh, Nothing is a magic solution. There are just a lot of things. I'm, I'm actually very bullish on St. Louis. I think our position in the plant technology uh, at, at the Danforth Science Center and uh, that whole complex across from Monsanto and at Washington U, uh, really, we're the Silicon Valley of, of plant technology. Uh, we're really the only city that I know of in the world that is as far along as we are. So those kinds of efforts, I think, bode well. But you got to have education and training. Uh, we can't have young people uh, graduating from school and the high school not prepared to do these complicated new jobs that are in our economy. And so two of the initiatives we're going to be talking about, I don't know if we're figured out, is how to get more young people and alums of schools like Washington U and others to be mentors to young kids who really have less parenting than they need. And I think that's a huge answer in the education area. I also think we need to look at high school-level and what it's doing in what I would call vocational education. Uh, when I went to Southwest High School on Kings Highway in Arsenal, 
Down the street, we had a high school called Hadley that was a vocational or technical high school. And kids there learned how to be electricians, plumbers, etc. And I think we're missing the boat on that. I, I, there's just not enough of that available for young people. There's an experiment going on in Delaware where they've taken three high schools and they have uh, uh, worked out 20 or 30 majors for kids to uh, engage themselves in. When they come there as freshmen, they figured out those uh, majors by talking to the businesses in the community and what kind of skills they need to hire. And then uh, half of the day, for four years, the kids are in the classroom, and the second half of the day they go out and intern in these jobs that are available. So they can really begin to see, you know, what it would be like to be an auto mechanic or an electrician or to work in a manufacturing plant or whatever it is. And I just think we need to have a lot more granular training uh, for the kids that want to do that, I, I think in most high schools, they don't see enough of that to even know if that's something they'd like to engage in. I'm on a board of a number of companies. We're having trouble finding truck drivers at Yellow Freight. And it's a good job. It pays seventy grand a year, and, and we can't find them. Uh, we're having trouble in Wichita finding people to work in an airplane plant. That's a good job. These are union jobs that are going begging because the talent and the people aren't there. So I think that's those are two areas that we're going to be talking about that can offer part of the solution. Nothing is a panacea, nothing's a silver bullet, but a lot of these things working together can really improve the economy here in St. Louis. Well, I just want to thank you for giving up 30 minutes of your time to, to talk to both of us. This was a real treat, uh, certainly for me. I, I think I've only interviewed you once back in 2008. I think Joe has interviewed you at least twice. Is that is that true, Joe? Let's put maybe a couple about a couple zeros. <laughs> We've I've probably interviewed what a hundred times. We've probably talked. Oh, well, maybe maybe two hundred. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. I, I, it was probably more of a joy for me than than you, but um, it sounds like you're doing really well and your family's doing well. Oh, you bet. We're lucky people, as I said.